Hello everyone, this is the Panshu Singhal and I welcome you all to another episode of Interlink where we have conversations on issues of global importance from an interdisciplinary lens. Today, we will unpack the idea of economic growth, its recipe, the factors influencing it and certain problems in its face with Professor Anuradha Saha. Professor Saha is currently an assistant professor of economics at Ashoka University. She completed her PhD at the Indian Statistical Institute, Delhi Center. She has earned her undergraduate and postgraduate degrees from St. Stephen's College and Delhi School of Economics, respectively. Professor Saha's research interests include macroeconomic theory, growth theory, and development economics. Her thesis focused on sectoral growth with emphasis on services sector dynamics. She is currently working on characterization characterizing international trade in services where some of the features are quite different from that of trade in manufacturers. Professor Saha, we welcome you to Interlink. Thanks, Dipanchu. It's fun to be here. Right. Um, so, Professor Saha, as most of us know, in the contemporary era, sustainable economic growth is quintessential for any country in determining its success power and the welfare of its citizens. Largely, the economic growth is defined as the change in per capita gross domestic product of an economy over a particular period of time. So whenever we think about economic growth, one of the first things that come to one, everyone's mind are investment in technology, infrastructure, and human capital alongside the idea of accumulation of wealth or resources. Is this the correct way to think about economic growth? How much do you think investments in the aforementioned areas contribute in developing and developed nations? Right. Uh, uh, so, Dipanchu, there are two aspects of economic growth. One is day-to-day, -day, how things are changing, year-on-year, -year, how things are changing. And the other is, over long run, is a country's capability increasing over time, capabilities in terms of production, uh, producing goods and services. When we think about year-to-year -year changes, we think primarily that the money that households save in banks, how is it used? Uh, it's primarily used by firms. Uh, it it been, could be in public projects. It could be in private projects. But these projects are financed through household savings, and these projects uh, create uh, new capacities for production, uh, for production of goods and services. So that is day-to-day -day affairs. The longer term affairs is, uh, uh, is a longer term capacity to produce is determined by that if you want to produce a good, there are different factors of production. There's labor, there's capital. And can we use these two factors of production, primarily these two factors of production, in an increasingly more efficient and productive manner? Uh, one example could be that, you know, uh, we, we could... Uh, be cooking in in chulhas, and over time, uh, over time, we can shift to uh, gas. Uh, then, from cylinder gas, we have now moved to uh, piped gas connection. Each technology is an improvement because the first, from chulha to uh, gas, it reduces the time to cook. It makes the uh, uh, cooking uh, the fuel very uh, energy efficient as well as uh, easy to procure. And from cylinders moving on to, say, piped gases, uh, again, now we have greater control over uh, this, the transmission of fuel from the supplier to the uh, uh, people, to the households who are consuming it. Uh, that, uh, that time has been shrunk to almost zero. So, so each, uh, so, so the capacity, so in, if you think about it, uh, this 
uh, this change in technology from say uh, uh, cylinder to piped gas it's an expensive change in technology it's not a, you have to ha you had to have economies of scale in you know laying down these pipelines making metered connections getting consensus set safety issues so when you make these long term changes it's not necessary that they will translate immediately in economic growth it's only over time when people start using these new technologies that it becomes economic growth so so that is uh, what i want to answer that you know when you think about economic growth you have to think about investments which are going to give immediate returns and investments which are going to give returns in the longer horizon infrastructure investment is one which is meant to give immediate returns and hence uh, for developing economies it's a sure shot mechanism for high growth why is that because the minute uh, in the process of creating an infrastructure uh, the workers are skilled uh, building construction of highways they're getting some skill uh, and when the process is when the infrastructure project is created it has immediate uh, unless it's like something like chinese coast towns which has also happened which is which is an outlier so to speak but in most developing economies most infrastructure projects have such a large scale uh, 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 capital investment that usually they are well thought of and they are they are things that are daily need there's a hospital there's school there's housing complexes uh, all of these resolve some sort of real world issues or uh, real uh, issues in the society and hence they have immediate gains uh, in short term when you talk about human capital and technology they the returns are in the longer horizon human capital of course when you you're spending time in college school and it's only after 18 years or, or 20 years of education only then you it converts into output you know in terms of market uh, earning capabilities so it's a long horizon and technology uh, when you talk pick up new technology it takes time to update these technologies for example uh, in the 19 uh, 70s and 80s when you know uh, computers came out in the united states it took a long time for these gains from uh, computer usage to re to be realized in gdp numbers in fact uh, uh, for for the longest time uh, the joke was that you see computers everywhere except in uh, technology accounting right so 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 these take time to materialize these uh, uh, these take human capital takes time to materialize technology takes time to be adopted and hence they affect growth in the longer horizon infrastructure investments so, so if you talk about investments as share of gdp you think uh, in india it's about 30% in fact most uh, developing economies Uh, have uh, like developed economies have uh, uh, around 25% investment as a share of gdp very poor economies have low shares because if if they are susceptible to wars or 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 crisis then they uh, they have very low investment but india has had 30% as a share of gdp for a long time now and of this if you think about infrastructure spending india spends about 4% of its gdp in infrastructure projects but uh, the, in around 2019 there was an article in economic times which discussed uh, that you know the requirement for india is that it spends about 7 to 8% of gdp in infrastructure so even here we see that the infrastructure required uh, is much more than what we are doing right now and hence uh, the, uh, the the growth effects through these spendings will persist for a long time for a developing country like ours primarily so because the need is large right professor so uh, i just want to tread a bit more on the human capital aspect of it because you know it seems so quintessential to 
it's almost a prerequisite for economic for any uh, economy to grow and you know the politicians also focus so much on educating the uh, population and upskilling them so in your opinion how much and in what ways uh, do these do the establishment of good and robust social institutions contribute to the accumulation of human capital and the larger growth in the economy um, it has a huge role to play uh, social norms have a huge role to play right from day one are you sending are do parents send their kids to school because you know kids uh, uh, have uh, uh, parents have a choice either you use a kid in a farm in a shop or you send them to school but that so parents have to value education a and that they have to invest in the child's education outside just sending them to school for example it's not just coaching but following up with coaching mentoring uh, uh, uh those kind of uh, non monetary investments are required for children so there there is a culture east asian economies have this high culture uh, of you know have this culture not high culture have this culture of sending their kids valuing education and that has led to you know literacy rates being very high and these kids are uh, the, the pisa scores of this uh, these kids are extremely good and these kids can you know uh, find jobs within the nations outside nations so there are huge multiplier effects there the other kind of social norms which affects uh, uh, human capital human capital human skill investments or human capital investments is so their adult population can have members of different religion different caste different gender now if there are sections of adult populations who are not as productive as other sections of your uh, adult population then you have an inefficient allocation of skills that means there are some people who would not be able to contribute to society simply because they were not sent to school or they withdrew from school early on so in schooling systems college system uh, there sh- there should be limited uh, segregation there shouldn't be uh, that a girl child's education is less valuable than a male child's education those ideologies are problematic uh, even if suppose uh, uh, women make a choice or even a man can make a choice of you know not working in labor market and staying in home and contributing to home labor even then educated people in home front are important because they they, they increase efficiencies at home the uh, that itself is a, a and uh, when when the next generation comes uh, there are multiplier effects on what they what the kids learn at home so hence education uh, social norms and education go hand in hand and uh, 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 they are very very important i agree with you Right, professor and you know under all these things we have like a common undertone which is a lot of these things have to do with several socio political factors which also closely influence the economic progress path of a country so in this regard how do these social norms then dom- combined with domestic politics law and public institutions affect the economic growth of a nation and is there any empirical evidence of the same right so when you talk about these we broadly you're talking about institutions both formal institutions and informal institutions informal institutions the social conventions of a society so these institutions have two effects first is they 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 have effects in enforcement of contracts so if there's a worker going to a firm uh, uh producing a good uh, he or she is going under the implicit assumption that there after a month of work they'll be getting back some money 
right? So that informal contract, is it if, if the firm refuses to pay or if the worker refuses to go, can the hiring and firing strategies? So all those things, I have to trust these relationships in the production sphere for, 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 for any kind of production act, productive activity to take, economic activity to take place. So that is uh, uh, through contracting, uh, social and uh, uh, formal institutions have a role to play. The other form, uh, other way in which uh, they have to role to play is in attracting capital. Uh, so if if your brand is a firm's brand, uh, or because you know investments are by nature risky, so why should I invest in building a dam? Okay, why should uh, the the government invest, why should households invest, why should international players invest in a dam in some remote, some remote town in some country if there are no guarantees that it will reap some benefits, right? Uh, it will reap benefits in terms of uh, access to water, uh, uh, productivity of crops, uh, uh, towns uh, growing up around this uh, avenue. So, so the social and formal institutions make uh, attract capital because returns to investments are more guaranteed or even if they, 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 at least there's a ban that even if you the, the project fails the project fails for the right reasons not because someone f did a fraud or someone cheated out of uh, someone out so 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 uh, that risk in you know an un unsuccessful project because of circumstances outside your control those are valid risks but if your project fails because someone was, you know, uh, someone was uh, in not credible, that is a poor signal. Uh, and hence, uh, uh, the institutions even correct for that. Uh, if you think about empirical evidence, of course, Asimoglu has a body of work, Asimoglu Robinson have a body of work, which look at how institutions uh, play a growth a role in economic growth, primarily through uh, creating credible incentives and uh, uh, that, so, so, so there is a lot of work there. Right, Professor. And to go a little deeper into investigating these institutional and political factors that influence economic growth, I'd like to talk uh, about the structure of governments. So there's this modernization theory that tries to understand the relationship between democracies and economic growth. So do democracies cause economic growth or is it the other way around that economic growth promotes democracies and can one say that they have a mutually reinforcing and a synergistical relationship what are your takes on this debate right so uh, as i was mentioning asimoglu uh, has uh, in, in a 2014 2015 paper he has a paper called democracy does cause growth right so in this paper, they are looking at a cross-country relationship and finding whether democratization, that is increase, uh, uh, increased democratic manner of functioning in the gov um, functioning of the government, does it lead to increase in GDP per capita? And it says in the long run, the increase is about 20%, right? So, so there is evidence that democracy uh, does cause growth and uh, it, it's a very optimistic piece of evidence because over time, more and more countries are getting uh, choosing to be democracies and moving out or, 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 or at least adopting some measures, some elements of democracies in the system. Uh, is, is there, does growth cross democracy? Yes. As I said, there are some countries uh, are choosing to be democratic 
But this choice to be democratic is also governed by uh, leaders uh, uh, in these uh, different countries. In their, uh, uh, and it is not obvious that all in, as income grows, all countries will become democracies. Classic examples are Middle East and Asia, uh, Middle East, Middle, Middle East, Asia, Middle East countries, sorry, Middle East countries, there's China, there is Vietnam, North Korea. So we have a lot of uh, Asian economies who are not still uh, choosing or transitioning to democracies. Uh, uh, and I think I am, while I uh, to agree that uh, the democracy, uh, the, the democratic institutions provide incentives for you know, uh, different constituents, uh, to ask for resources. For example, what is how does democracy uh, uh, guarantee uh, assist in a growth is because it encourages citizens to invest, send their kids to school, uh, induce economic reforms, uh, provide public goods, uh, and it reduces social interest. This is straight out of Asimov newspaper. This is how the democracy channel works. Uh, so hence, I, I understand that channel. But you know, it's not that these channels can't be guaranteed through other mechanisms. For example, how uh, China has in, invested heavily in schooling and investments, uh, and has has provided public goods uh, and provided economic reforms, limited economic reforms, then, but nevertheless, they are there. Yes, at the cost of personal liberties, we, we would agree to that. But yes, China is an example which has successfully been able to do that. It, it is the only problem with is, as we as in our class, we read, read Kaushik Basu's video uh, that this band of high growth is higher for democracies. And in other forms of political institutions, there could be very high growth or very good growth. So there is a lot of uncertainty with other institutions. Democracy is a more stable form of government. And even if, say, you are unhappy with your current government, you have a chance of, you know, voting them out of power or, you know, chance of uh, uh, there, there's a structure in which you can, you can, you know, put up a, a new candidate and things like that. So, 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 so if, if, if I have to think again, Democracy causing economic growth is there. Economic growth always causing democracy less so, but there are several, on an average, we are seeing that, but we are also seeing some country examples which are just not walking that path. Uh, 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 and uh, my position is that instead of focusing on democracy per se, we have to really dig deep into the policies which make it happen. And if we can replicate those policies, uh, then, uh, then that also is a good place to be. Professor, as we see, countries do not just differ based on their governments, but also based on quote-unquote inherited factors like cultures and geographies. Um, and this variance is quite huge. So how do these factor into the economic growth trajectory that a country takes? And can this relation be metricized or is it only based on intuition? Yeah, sadly, with culture, it's hard to measure, you know, uh, the different elements of culture and which of the element of culture contributes to economic growth that could uh, uh, empirically teasing it out is, a, is, is difficult. But there are economic historians who are tracking uh, uh, episodes uh, uh, historical episodes about, you know, uh, uh, natural experiment settings, about how culture affects behavior. 
And then we have that these sets of behavior obviously have direct effects on economic growth. One such example, uh, uh, which is, uh, let me think a little bit. Yeah, one such example is uh, role of government. Government. Let's look at that example. So, uh, so we were discussing today that Europe and China both are large regions, and at some point, you know, they they were large. Uh, they, they they were large uh, uh, spheres of. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They, they could have been large empires, right? That's what I'm thinking about. But why is it that industrial revolution took off in Europe and not in China? Or why is Europe so much richer and, uh, than China? So Europe's geography is such that it is divided uh, by rivers, mountains. So it does not have a plain terrain. China on the other hand has four large regions, but they are more or less connected via river and you can access these different regions easily. So Europe has always had these geographical, different geographical locations uh, ruled by a different ruler, but China has always had a single ruler ruling the entire vast, largest economy you know, of the world, in last, uh, large, uh, vast space of land. So what I'm trying to say is because in Europe, you've always had different uh, uh, rulers in different locations, there was always an external threat for these governments that they can be overthrown from power. And hence that it served as an external check to their power and it incentivized them to invest more heavily in their own uh, uh, local population. It, and if, if, if they created policies which would hurt innovation, then these innovators had option of moving out of these geographies. Now this, you know, this, uh, this option is totally missing in a large single ruler dominated region like China, because you know, if an innovator is uh, punished, that person really has nowhere, nowhere to go. So in that sense, I think uh, a social uh, history has uh, and geography has a role to play in what it gives us experience. And that experience can create different institutions and those institutions provide different incentives and these incentives finally either propel growth, encourage investment, encourage long-term, uh, long-term looking forward-looking policies, or they do not do so. So uh, uh, another example, let me think about uh, culture, is you know uh, East Asian economies have mostly are followed mostly Confucian culture, Confucian ideology, which encourages saving, being patient, uh, uh, and you know being more in looking at a longer time horizon. So being thrift, don't think, uh, limiting your consumption. Uh, so, so that has that also explains why these economies have such high savings rate of around thirty percent or so, and how they're always willing to lend to the government for public infrastructure projects. So, so again, uh, uh, culture seems to have an effect in uh, how we look at uh, governance and uh, these incentives. Right. And Professor, this also reminded me of the Singaporean example where we have Lee Kuan Yew who came into power and he really motivated people to work. And he uh, he said that uh, the ben immediate benefits might not be very high, but the grandchildren, your grandchildren will reap those benefits. And we see that today, how, you know, Singapore transformed its, its economy just because of its location near the state of Malacca, which is an important trade point. 
correct 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 and you know depending on your culture you are uh, you think about for example this claim that you know be patient think of a long horizon in india also suppose if you if a leader made that claim people would be willing but uh, but after some point they would be you know okay this claim is helping some sets of people not helping some sets of because because we have a colonial history which has followed divide and rule policy we would be distrusting each other or worse you know there would be the people who are not getting immediate access to power would would be worried about we'll never get access to power they will want to change the government so so, so things are not as smooth in our economy because we have we have we do not have a similar history of you know peaceful coexistence in in recent times so that could be a problem yeah, yes i fully agree with dipanchu that singapore is an excellent example right and professor now to change gears a bit uh, as most of us know that economists are very fond of having equilibria so however the great economist albert hirschman argued that this equilibria must be encouraged for fostering economic growth and mobilizing resources in developing countries he also greatly emphasized the need for an unbalanced growth path quite contradictory to what our regular economic models and theory classes tell us so how should we understand hirschman's idea and are there any real life examples of it being implemented yeah so that this in fact ties very closely to my area of work which i work a lot on sectoral dynamics so see when something new if some new technology has to come out some new sector has to grow then obviously an older sector is not uh, does not have similar growth potential wages have become stagnant that is why something new is required becomes attractive so to speak so if you think about it in india uh, or in east southeast asia is a particular example of this manufacture didn't take didn't take off here so from agriculture the economy has directly transitioned to services now now what does it mean by having non balanced growth one way of looking at non balanced growth is like the growth rate is not constant so things are continuously changing and if growth rate is not constant you still have potential there is no stagnation something is coming up constantly the other aspect of non balanced growth is that different sectors are growing at different rates so there will be a leading sector there will be a lagging sector in india the leading sector which contributes most to gdp is the services sector in china for example it's the manufacturing sector so most economies transition from agriculture to manufacturing to services but some countries are missing the middle stage and directly transitioning to services now we can contest we can discuss that okay this is bad and in some sense um, manufacturing capabilities have have la- large multiplier effects and services jobs so i agree to that but but it's important for people to move out of agriculture and go for more skilled uh, jobs and services is the one which is available manufacturing is hard to take off in india because we have land regulation so creating large plants is uh, hard uh, we also have uh, 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 labor laws which are not very conducive they, they make it hard to hire and fire so those are valid concerns but which but the government is increasingly looking at these problems and uh, uh, there will be way out another so india is also becoming very good in the startup culture which does not create a lot of jobs only 40000 or so jobs in this uh, uh, market but the the startup culture is working towards solving a lot of uh, real time example online classes uh, there's this coaching byjuice was a startup the uh, then you know this app to buy medicines cheap 
uh, uh, the, uh, the other things that I can think about is uh, opening DMAT accounts has become so easy to uh, see this new app grow, if I'm not wrong. So we have a lot of these startups who, which are facilitating movement of funds, movement of information, and hence uh, they are bringing in economies of scale, which is again uh, very beneficial for both. Right. So, Professor, the idea basically is to find your own niche and kind of start developing, and at the same time start diversifying. Because the more you yeah. diversify into different things, the better it is for your economy. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Professor, after discussing the factors that influence economic growth, I'd like to also talk about briefly about some roadblocks that a country might face in this in its quest for sustainable economic growth, especially through the example of China. So, as most of us know, that China has shown exemplary growth rates in the recent decades, but it is its growth has started to slow down recently. It appears to have gotten stuck in what economists refer to as the middle income trap. How can China break out of uh, such a trap, given that its population is also aging at a very rapid rate now? And how have other Asian countries like Singapore, Korea, Taiwan, etc., bro broken out from this trap? Right. Uh, uh, so ch uh, the middle income trap, so when less developed economies start uh, growing, they primarily grow at, on the back of low-skill manufacturing. So you have these workers who were working in agrarian sector, and now they are getting doing manufacturing jobs, low-skill manufacturing jobs. So China did that through export-led growth. So it had a lot of U.S. Uh, European firms investing, even Asian firms investing heavily, uh, FDI from these countries moving to China. And now, uh, recently, because of the world war, uh, not world war, because of the third war with uh, trade war with uh, U.S a lot of these companies are moving out of China. That being said, China was already looking to move out of this low-skill manufacturing to high-skill manufacturing space. Uh, a recent work by uh, Subramaniam and uh, uh, Subramaniam and uh, Shomitra Chatterjee, they have worked and shown that this space of you know global uh, global space of trade in uh, low skill manufacturing is available, and they were saying they, they showed how China is investing less in low skill manufacturing. So in some sense, China is already preparing uh, for this uh, to get to get to get out of this middle income track by investing in more skilled uh, value chain productions uh, and other economies, other Asian economies which you listed, Singapore and all. They also moved. Uh, started investing, started building their capabilities in high-end manufacturing, high-end services. Uh, that's how these uh, countries have uh, developed and not got stuck in middle-income trap. Right. And Professor, there also seems to be this term that has been thrown around in context of China about double circulation, how they want to kind of start importing, so exporting more and at the same time increase their domestic consumption also to the level that, you know, the economy can sustain itself and Especially, I think, in the context of the trade war, when it its uh, exports are being threatened by several correct. economies. Correct, correct, correct. And given that it has had export-led growth, that means most of its factories are foreign-owned. So that's a real. It will have real. It will have catastrophic effects on employment if China does not uh, uh, have promote domestic investments. So it has to. The reason why people are worried about China because they don't see a change in policy in terms of promoting uh, 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 
promoting private investments and promoting property rights. So why will I set up, if I'm a Chinese citizen, why will I set up a plant in China if ultimately the government can any day take over my plant? So unless there are incentives provided for private, private Chinese citizens to create assets, uh, uh, domestic investment will be low and that will mean that jobs are uh, jobs will not uh, be uh, so widely available. So, so, so if the current government can make these changes in uh, providing incentives, then yes, uh, uh, China can be, uh, uh, China would be able to uh, escape the middle income trap much sooner than what, uh, what uh, commentators say right now is possible. Professor, the idea of growth is often viewed with some apprehension through the lens of rising inequalities or the widening wealth gaps in countries. And these inequalities are massive, not just inter-nations, but also intra-nations. So how do we reconcile these two ideas? Or is it that growing economies are doomed to have rising inequalities? Inequality rises along with growth if people who participate in this high growing firms, high growing sectors have skills which are very specialized. India's growth trajectory, uh, only the educated labor force can get job in this high skill service sector, A. B, the education is such that it's not the quality of education is not uniform across educational institutions. So it's not that everyone who graduates has got skills, uh, uh, has got same amount of skills as the top premier, as of someone in top premier. So that itself creates inequality uh, within uh, when you talk about returns to education. So, so this access to public goods in terms of education is essential in mitigating inequality access to health resources is essential in mitigating inequality. Some countries have, for example, US hasn't been as successful in mitigating, uh, in, in reducing inequality, partly uh, uh, because it has, uh, uh, it has, uh, uh, it has very low social security nets. The social security nets are low compared to what are the, what are the numbers are for the for developed world, but European nations, uh, South Korea, uh, Singapore, they have invested heavily in, uh, in uh, education and increasingly they are uh, 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 thinking about expanding their social security nets. So in that sense, it's not obvious or it's not guaranteed that because, uh, 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 because a country develops, uh, it will always have growing inequality. We did this example in class about Norway, when Norway found oil and the leaders of the economy invested heavily in uh, uh, a fund which, which invests. So all oil uh, resources are invested in fund and this fund finances public investment in public infrastructure in Norway. So, but that is a very unique example of a Scandinavian country. Usually you don't have such far-sighted far leaders and usually don't, you don't have oil uh, as well, the revenues from oil for, for governments, it's pretty rare. But uh, yes, uh, Norway has, a lot of Scandinavian countries have invested heavily in uh, pu public institutions. Right, uh, Professor, that gives us a very, you know, broad and a nuanced framework to think about economic growth. Um, lastly, it would be great if you could please suggest two books that our listeners can look up to read more about the, these ideas that we discussed about economic growth. 
uh, Asimoglu's Robinson's Why Nations, uh, Asimoglu's Why Nations Fail is a seminal book. Why? Because uh, 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 what are the what are the fundamental causes of growth? High growth is institutions, and that book encapsulates history of institutions, what institutions do, how do they work. It's an excellent, excellent book. I strongly recommend that. The other book is a, is a, is a, is an esoteric book, but which is a personal favorite of mine. It's a book called uh, In Their Time, The Greatest Business Leaders of the 20th Century. So this book is by Mayo and Odia, and they're listing for every decade industrialists or business persons in the US economy. And why this is fascinating, it's fascinating because uh, different, it's not that everyone was rich, but everyone figured out a model or a problem to solve and they could scale it up well it's it's a business book, and I think we have to we get to learn a lot about innovation, not necessarily the requirement of capital, but you know management skills and things like that. How they have a role to play, how institutions have a role to play. So these that, that those are people specific examples, and I really like the book. It's it's one of my I read once a year. I revise that book once a year. So that is another book. I it's a fat book. I recommend it, but uh, it's it's a, it's you'll enjoy it a lot. Thank you so much, Professor, for taking out the time today and having this session. It was really good to have you on Intellect. Thanks, Dipanshu. It was fun to do work and look up the look up for your questions. So yeah, fantastic questions and thanks for having me here. Thank you, Professor, and thank you to our listeners for listening. Stay tuned for more updates and conversations on Intellect. Until then, you can check out our previous episodes on our website and Spotify. Look out for our social media handles. Have a great day.